Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? So today I'm starting the show somewhere a bit different. I'm at the Capilano River Salmon Hatchery in North Vancouver. And this is where, over the years, millions of fingerlings have been born. They'll wriggle out to the river and eventually find their way to the ocean, then returning to spawn and die right here where they began. But something's happening to that ancient, magical journey. Some other salmon stocks up the coast from here are making a turn to the north, to the Arctic. On a warming planet, they're not alone seeking safer, in this case, colder harbors. This week, we're on the lookout for animals on the move because of climate change and how new research shows they can be saved from extinction by something hiding in plain sight. Strange creatures arrive from distant lands. That's not a sci-fi plot, it is reality. The truth is, plants and animals are showing up in new places all over the world. We're literally living through a redistribution of life on Earth, which even though this is my bread and butter that I I work on, it, it really does blow my mind that that's what we're seeing at the moment. That is Professor Greta Petzl. She's a marine ecologist at the University of Tasmania who studies how species are shifting where they live as the planet warms. And the verb tense here is really key. It really does blow my mind that that's what we're seeing at the moment. This isn't part of some future climate change scenario. It's happening right now. Scientists have already documented range shifts, as they're called, in more than 12,000 species worldwide. So in the northern hemisphere, plants and animals are moving north. In the southern hemisphere, they're moving south. Uh, Plants and animals are going to higher elevations on mountains and, and deeper in the ocean. And it really is a pervasive movement of of you know, the geography of of life. There's a lot we don't know yet about how this is all going to play out, and it's expected to get uh, messy. Creatures aren't heading for the hills or the poles at the same pace. And that's where the complications come in, I think. If we if we had this neat system where, you know, entire ecosystems were marching collectively in the one direction and staying intact, it probably would be less of an adjustment that ecosystems and humans that depend on them need to make. But because we have all of these connections and links between species being broken as, you know, one species moves along at, you know, 100 kilometres a decade and another one is 10 kilometres a decade and those connections will get broken and then new connections get made. And we're really just at the starting point of what that actually means. All of it has consequences for nature and for us, as the plants and animals that we rely on aren't where they used to be. Um, So that changing access will mean, you know, potentially a lot of conflict. And I think that's why, as a society, we need to be having discussions now about how should we be uh, approaching this challenge of 
this redistribution of life on earth and in particular how do we do that in an equitable legitimate way well let's start those conversations in this half hour as we look at how the movement of nature is already affecting people in canada and what we can do about it For some people, there is so much at stake when fish, animals, and other species desert one place for another. Gordon Beaton's livelihood depends on an abundance of fish and seafood. He's the third generation in his family to make a living from the sea, and he is seeing some unsettling changes. He joins me from Antigonish in Nova Scotia. Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. You were actually bringing in snow crab this week. How did you do? Oh, we did all right. It was... uh... A good season with all the uh, COVID controversies and issues. We managed to uh, catch our quota in a pretty reasonable amount of time and got a fairly reasonable price. But how does that compare, though, to recent years? It's down over the last couple of years, but it, it is a very cyclical thing anyway, sometimes. Uh, how many years have you been doing this for? <laughs> well, I mean, probably worked on my, my, my dad's boat every summer probably from when i was 14 years old but i had my i've had my own uh, lobster operation since 1993 and then bought my father's uh, crab operation about uh, 18 years ago okay that is a long time what were you what were you what were you catching when you first started out well we always fished lobster but in the summer uh, when i'd be home from school school was out we used to fish uh, uh, red hake and codfish that used to be our summer job and at that time it was a it was a good summertime living on top of uh, a lobster industry and what are you seeing now that you didn't see back then um there's no commercial fishing for cod or red hake in this area anymore part of that's probably overfishing and then whatever slowing their recovery down is uh, is having an effect too and what about lobster well our lobster actually are doing quite well our conservation has been a little stronger, and the uh, the lobster harvest in the Gulf is is pretty healthy. We fish May and June in our area, and uh, the first fifteen or twenty years I fished, you know, we'd be delayed by ice uh, not leaving the zone, leaving the area by the first of May, pretty near half the time. But really, the last ten years or so, we've I don't think we've had an ice delay or maybe a day or so at the most. Well, that speaks to change. But are there more lobster, even with the conservation methods, are there more lobsters showing up in the waters now? I would say so, yeah. I think uh, I think they're the most lobster areas in the Gulf are uh, doing quite well. In areas where uh, lobster was trying to survive and at its warmest environment, range of, of temperature, it, they've disappeared. But maybe in areas where the water was a little colder, uh, a little bit of warmer water might not hurt them. Uh, seems that way. Newfoundland, a lot of Newfoundland lobster are doing a bit better, and they would have been at the coldest area where lobsters were found. Well, I wonder what that says to you about your own future. I mean, particularly now with the snow crab that you've been harvesting, are you expecting that to uh, continue to be a lucrative and regular and healthy stock for you? Uh, well, we, we we certainly hope so. The, the Gulf of St. Lawrence is the uh, fastest warming waters in the world, they tell us. That's uh, not really a good omen for us. You know, we're hoping that it's at a rate that this, the uh, species can 
hang on. It certainly puts more doubt in, uh, in the future of some of this stuff, for sure. I've talked to a lot of men and women who fish the waters um, off of the West Coast over the years, and without romanticizing it, a lot of them talk about how fishing is, is something that's sort of in their bones and passed from generation to generation. And your father fished. Why did you want to do it too? <laughs> I, I went out and got some real jobs for a while, and I, <laughs> I found out that uh, I didn't like them that much. So I went back, <laughs> I went back, to, to, back to fishing, yeah. Say did it from a very young age, and um, and in these areas uh, like rural Nova Scotia, you know, fishing is considered pretty good livelihood. It allowed me to make a living all those years, not have to uh, do as some of my friends had to do, go to Alberta chasing money. So um, it was a great lifestyle that way, keeping us home with the kids and uh, and still being able to make a, a decent livelihood. And now your son is in this game too. How optimistic are you that this is actually going to be a good path for him, given what we've been talking about, how the waters are changing? I think he's trying to prepare himself that this might not be as long a career as I may have or that that he might have to change course at some point if one of our main fisheries starts to falter, that he might have to be looking at other other ways to make a living, but try to stay optimistic. Wow, it just it sounds like a hard time to maybe stay optimistic, but uh, is that something that's also drilled into you, is just go year to year? Fishermen are pretty uh, pretty, pretty uh, good faith and stuff, I think. We typically throw thousands of dollars worth of gear over the side of the boat and go home and then go back the next day expecting to see it there with something in it. So we're pretty used to that kind of concept, trying to, you know, hoping for the best. Well, I wish you good luck in the in the harvest to come, and thanks for talking to me. No problem. Thank you. Gordon Beaton is in Antigonish, Nova Scotia. So some of the creatures that we are used to seeing or catching are disappearing from familiar locations. But remember that this is a redistribution of life on Earth. So that means that species are showing up where we haven't seen them before. One of our producers, Lisa Johnson, has a story of one of these arrivals happening right here in Canada. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Laura. So who or what is showing up and where? So, Laura, you know how here in BC we keep hearing about salmon struggling, especially in the summer when rivers are getting warmer? Well, it turns out Pacific salmon, so the sockeye and pinks and chum we're used to seeing down here, are now showing up in the Arctic. There are also reports of Atlantic salmon getting caught in the east, sort of near Baffin Island. But the biggest increase they're documenting is Pacific salmon in Arctic waters. Okay, that is surprising to me. Is it a new thing? It is not completely new, but things are definitely changing with harvesters finding fish in their nets they don't recognize and have never seen before. I talked to Karen Dunmall, who's a scientist with Fisheries and Oceans Canada, who studies what are now called Arctic salmon. And she told me that like up the Mackenzie River system, so in the Western Canadian Arctic, people are used to catching chum there, but in recent years, more are showing up. And then also other kinds of salmon and in other places where in the Arctic where they've never been seen before. Sockeye salmon are now more recently showing up. And then Chinook and Coho are also occasionally harvested. Um, so we're noticing increasing numbers of salmon being harvested, increasing numbers of species of salmon being harvested and increasing places that salmon are being harvested in uh, Northwest Territories and now into Nunavut. 
So Cambridge Bay, Nunavut, like 2,000 kilometers away from what's traditionally thought of as sockeye territory. But they do as they do harvest fish there. They harvest Arctic char, which I've had before. It's delicious. But but do they feel the same way when they pull up a salmon? Well, they've had a lot of questions. Um, you know, some early stories that I've heard is that when harvesters would, would get a salmon in their nets, they weren't really used to it as a food, and so they'd throw it to their dogs. Throw it away? Um, <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, my. Uh, it, I mean, it's, it's, a whole new, it's a whole new thing in some of these places, right? And that is why DFO is doing this research. Karen Dunmel says it's been totally driven by the questions coming from people in the community who want to know, like, where are these fish coming from and what is happening to the ecosystem? The first question is actually, uh, uh, what is this fish? Um, because people, um, while they know uh, what they normally catch, they may not recognize an unusual fish as a salmon because it's not something that people would normally catch in most places across the Canadian Arctic. So to like get a picture of how unusual, DFO actually made a field guide in Inuktitut to ID salmon because uh, there weren't names in some of these places for salmon, and that's been translated into other local languages. And then they also made a community cookbook um, so that people could share recipes about how they're preparing the salmon, which you know has been showing up, and now they can use it to feed their families. That sounds like there's a lot of salmon showing up. How many are we talking about? Well, they are still rare, uh, but they're on the increase. So in some years, over the two decades they've been tracking them, it's just been a few dozen across the whole Arctic. More recently, a few hundred. Uh, and then last year, it was nuts in a way that no one expected. There were 2,500 turned in by harvesters. So more in one summer than the other 18 years they've been tracking combined. And I called Michelle Grubin, who works at the Eklavik Hunters and Trappers Committee, which is one of the community hubs where harvesters can turn in salmon they catch and it can be used in the research. In exchange, they get a gift card, um, 25 bucks for just the head of the salmon or $50 for the whole salmon. Um, and the phone line where I reached Michelle wasn't great, but here's how she described last year. Last summer, for the salmon, it was crazy busy. There was even a harvester that ran in here with his salmon. He's here, I want 50 bucks. <laughs> and he brought, ran up the stairs and he brought in that whole salmon. I said, gee, I'm not taking any more whole salmon. I'm just taking the head. Well, he cut the head right off out here on the stairs. So, Laura, there were so many salmon, their freezers were full, they had to switch from accepting whole fish to heads only because of what a crazy year it was. That, that does sound crazy, but there have to be consequences, right? So what does the arrival of the salmon up there mean for the salmon stocks here on the West Coast? Well, that's what got me so curious about this story. You know, of course, here in the West Coast, there's been good years and bad years, but overall, Pacific salmon are in decline and temperature is increasingly part of that story. I asked UBC professor Scott Hinch, who studies salmon ecology, to walk me through what's happening here. And big picture, the ocean and the rivers are getting warmer and that is not good for salmon. You know, if you look specifically at this really crucial moment, uh, which is when the adults migrate upstream to spawn, a trip is already like a marathon. They're swimming upstream, they're not eating. And when the water is warmer, they're getting hit by more diseases and parasites on the trip. And there's actually like, less oxygen in the water. So it's harder for them to breathe. So on that trip, every degree matters. And, you know, with we've studied this quite a bit in my lab. And what we find uh, with adult migrating salmon is that window may only be four to five degrees between what is the optimum, the best temperature for them, and what is the temperature that will kill them. 
And this isn't like a theoretical problem. There are times in the height of summer, and 2018 was one of those years, where the water on the Fraser River is literally so warm over key days, it'll kill fish before they get to spawning grounds. Oh, gosh. Is this, uh, I'm afraid to ask the next question that because I grew up eating salmon all the time. It was something that was so easy for my father to go out and fish and put on the table. Does this point to a future where the Arctic has salmon and southern BC just doesn't anymore? I don't think we know that. It is absolutely something that hearing about salmon in the Arctic has got me wondering. You know, this concept, range shift that scientists talk about, you know, I'd heard about it for years and here it looks like it's something that could be happening in real time to this iconic fish. Scott Hinch says if we want to get a sense of the possible future for BC salmon, we can look down the coast a few states south of us. If you look to California, I mean, they still have populations of Chinook salmon. But in many cases, they are sustained by hatcheries. Um, they have um, the populations are just a shadow of their former selves in terms of their abundances, um, and it's a pretty good indication of what's going to happen, you know, to parts of BC in terms of how water is going to continue to warm and maybe even get more short in supply in the future. So this all sounds pretty grim to me, Lisa. Is there anything that can be done about it? Obviously, how do you save salmon is like a huge question. We could have a, a royal commission on it right now, Laura. But um, in terms of the key ideas here, the temperature is already increasing um, no matter how quickly we act on climate change. So we need to plan for this. Scott Hinch says if you want to help salmon populations survive when the temperature is going to be stressing them out more, it means decreasing other stressors. So whether that's overfishing or you know water use, making sure there's enough flow that they can stay cool in the river. And then, you know, as temperatures warm up, he said we may need to prioritize which populations we're trying the hardest to save. So, you know, is it the most endangered or is it the strongest that has the greatest chance of survival? You know, there's going to be choices to make and it won't be easy. Doesn't sound pretty. Lisa, thank you. Thanks, Laura. Lisa Johnson is a producer with us here at What On? Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on. Which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts on Earth. Now, there are some places that do offer some protection to salmon, parts of rivers that stay cooler even during a heat wave, or pockets in our warming oceans that are like cold, safe havens for sea creatures. It's similar to finding some shade under a tree or feeling the lake breeze on a hot day. And for some scientists, these places are part of the solution to the range shifts we're already seeing around the world, and not just in the water, but on land, too. My next guest says we just have to know how to look for them. Diana Strahlberg is an ecologist and conservation biologist at the University of Alberta. She recently co-authored a paper called Climate Change Refugia, Biodiversity in the Slow Lane. Hello. Hi, Laura. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. What are climate refugia? So refugia, the concept has been around for a while, mostly uh, used by paleoecologists to examine where species escaped 
major changes in climate in the past. So during the ice ages, for example, a lot of species, boreal species retreated into refugia. But now these are areas, broadly speaking, of species persistence under climate change. And we like to think of them as a sort of slow lane for species in a rapidly changing world. And, w- and what do you mean by that slow lane idea? Well, the slow lane in concept just means that we're looking for areas that are changing more slowly with respect to the surrounding landscape or um, the rapid changes that are generally occurring. So these are areas that species and ecosystems can bide time while they adapt to change, um, or we figure out how to slow down the process of climate change. And are those slow lanes in every region? Pretty much, yes. Uh, From a lot of species, you can identify refugia. Some species, really, the projection suggests there isn't a lot of hope for persisting in place, but then we have to look at where they can move to. So when we talk about refugia, we're not talking about just areas of persistence, but also areas that are well-connected through corridors that species can more readily shift to. So moving upslope on a mountain, for example, um, and in, in some cases moving along river corridors to the next suitable climate. So you talked about river corridors, moving up mountainsides. What other examples are there of, of what a refugia would be? Complex terrain in mountains, for example. So mountains have a lot of different microclimates. There's north-facing slopes that um, are sheltered from the sun's radiation. You have some cold air drainage and cold air pooling in river valleys. So you have a lot of microclimates in mountain systems. Um, In the east, in coastal regions, you have cooling influences of the ocean, so maritime influences over large areas. In the middle of, of the continent, you have these strings of large lakes, which can provide, uh, through onshore breezes, local cooling effects. So they can be kind of like big air conditioners for the surrounding areas, and especially the larger and deeper lakes. And then finally, there are things like the large wetland complexes, the peatlands, um, that have this really slow decomposition or lack of of decomposition of of organic matter and, and create these huge mats that really uh, retain water, retain moisture across the landscape and are really resilient to fire. And so some of these peatlands can also provide some refugia potential. And we just heard about salmon moving to the Arctic. What kind of animals in Canada are using these slow lanes right now? Yeah, well, that's probably a a broad range of uh, species, but the species that are at greatest risk from climate change are the ones that we're concerned about finding refugia for. So cold adapted species like white and black spruce, balsam fir, a lot of the migratory songbirds that use these forests, a lot of the species that may have trouble under a warmer, drier climate and also the northward encroachment of other warm adapted species. What about other species who who may be less sensitive right now, but in the future, how are they going to move into those areas as the climate continues to change? I think the refugia concept provides this framework for looking for these areas and then protect those areas in in parks or conservation areas or work with industry to manage them. And of course, larger landscapes provide more opportunity to connect current and future landscapes. So we want to protect 
these movement corridors and also, you know, landscapes that have a greater predominance of these intact refugia features that have more varied terrain, that have more peatlands, that have more large lakes. It almost sounds like a land-bound Noah's Ark in a way. I, I'm, these areas are there. Yeah. You're saying if we look for them, the species need them, but how well protected are they right now? Yeah, well, of course, they're not as well protected as we think they should be. Um, and Canada has some goals through the Convention on Biological Diversity to protect. We, we had a target of 17 percent by 2020. That was not achieved, but there was a lot of good progress made, especially in collaboration with Indigenous communities, especially in the north. So we're at 12 percent. There have been more ambitious targets set for 30 percent by 2030. 50% by 2050. And so these are targets, they're goals, and we need to work toward them. You use that word targets, which means it's not ironclad commitments. Um, yes, and, and I think about correct. things like compatibility um, of these refugia with, with people living on the same landscape or nearby, and then, mm-hmm. and then um, natural resources development, commercial development. Yes. How does all that work or not work? Well, that, of course, is the question. And we need to be Uh, more and more engaged in that process. And I'm a scientist, so I'm not as directly engaged, but I'm trying to work more with uh, organizations and planners who actually work on the ground in land use planning processes. So like in the Yukon, for example, I'm working with folks from the Wildlife Conservation Society and other organizations that are involved in land use planning processes with um, indigenous communities as part of their land claim settlements. That's one way is to work with all these stakeholders, and that includes industry as well, to start, you know, considering refugia alongside of all the other values, both ecological and economic, and putting that climate change lens on our conservation planning process. Well, that makes me wonder then, are you advocating that industrial development be prohibited in in large parts of the, the country that you see as having the potential to offer refuge to species? I think that's a question for people who know those landscapes um, more intimately than I do. I'm kind of a a working big picture here. I think there can be ways to do industrial development sustainably. And so I think it's just a matter of balancing all these values. And, you know, ultimately it is a societal choice. Um, But it's just that, you know, we do need to have some areas at least that are protected from development, not all. Why should people care, though, about the, the survival of species? You know, most people have a great appreciation for the the forests and the migratory birds that they experience when they go there, the, the lakes. You know, we want to protect species for their own sake, but also for societal enjoyment. Do you have a favorite species? Oh, I don't know. I have so many favorite species that, <laughs> I mean, I'm a, I'm a birder. I love those little bay-breasted warblers that just around and and they're kind of a treat just to discover. Um, I love the Canada warblers with their little necklace and their their beautiful colors. I have many favorite species. Sorry to make you to try to choose between all your babies there. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I can't. I'm a generalist that way. Yeah, I can't choose. (laughs) All right, Deanna, thank you very much. Well, thank you. I appreciate this opportunity. Deanna Strahlberg is an ecologist and a conservation biologist, and we reached her in Edmonton. That is it for this week. You can follow us on Twitter at CBC What on Earth or me at Laura Lynch CBC. Now next week, from fire break to fire propagator, peat and peat bogs carry both potential and problems for air quality and climate change. 
And since Canada has an abundance of peat, it's also where new work is underway to harness the benefits it can deliver. Thanks this week to the What on Earth team, associate producer Emily Rendell Watson, producers Molly Siegel, Lisa Johnson, and Sonia Biting. Matthias Wolfson was our technician this week. Manisha Janakaram is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.